Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan, and today we're talking about whole school well-being. My guest today is David Kolpak, head of the junior school at St. Peter's College in Adelaide, a school that's been working on whole school well-being for almost a decade now, perhaps even slightly more than a decade. Kia ora, David. We're delighted to have you with us, and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Thank you. It's great being with you. So first of all, tell me, um, is, it, is it almost a decade or just over a decade that St. Peter's has been working on? We're approaching. We're approaching. We're approaching so. a decade, yeah. And it's interesting when you look back how many things we were doing, and probably every school does, without bringing them together as, as a united program. So we would have had aspects going for a number of years without calling it a, a well-being framework or a structure and, you yeah. know... David, one of the things we still see in schools is schools that have lots of different well-being initiatives happening, but somehow nobody's joined the dots. Sure. And I think that, you know, probably like many schools, St. Peter's probably had loads of really well-embedded different well-being initiatives around the school, but that what you started doing 10 years ago was putting a huge, putting a full well-being framework around them. Yes. Um, Can you tell us a bit about about how that started and what the approach was and how that's unfolded. Yeah. I mean, obviously it works best in in every school situation being different, but for us, I think the best way that our school started was by starting with us as teachers. And it was all about us and our own wellbeing and the training that we received, you know, by day two or day three, it was by then you start to work out, hang on, this isn't about learning a curriculum or this isn't learning about what I'm going to do for other children, you know, for the children in my care. This was about what is my well-being and what do I now know about myself? Because we know we're as good to our students as we are to ourselves and what we take to our classes has to be the best of ourselves. So if we don't know who we are when we're at our best and if we're not looking after who we are, to be at our best, then we're not good for anyone else around us. So the, I think the best starting point that our school gave us was the training that we, we received. And, and we were blessed, I guess, having the University of Pennsylvania train us in a, in a six-day uh, resilience course. And I know that's a luxury and I know that's not something that um, schools are afforded, but any program that starts with the teachers as individuals and humans and works out how do we develop the teacher as a person has to be the best starting point because from there things will grow. And that was the best thing that that our school did for us. You've been doing it for quite a long time. What would you say are the big lessons? If you know, if someone said to you, tell me like top five lessons or three lessons that you would want to share with another school, what would they be? Yeah, so I've mentioned the staff. I think yeah. starting with the staff, that had to be the, the best lesson because, you know, working with some schools who tell me, oh, yes, we've, you know, we've been doing this with our children, we've done this with our children, and we've done this with our children, great. And I say, so what have you done with your staff? Mm-hmm. Well, the staff are having the lessons with the children as they do it. 
great, but. So you know that you're sometimes met with the old, what's in it for me? I'm doing this for the children, what's in it for me? So starting with the staff, I think, has to be lesson number one. Really interestingly, and it, and it's something that many schools that I've worked with have taken for granted, is that the pure definition of what well-being is. So how we define well-being in our school is not the same as every other school would define well-being. So being able to come up with a shared definition of what well-being means in your own environment is key because mm-hmm. you need to have that benchmark. You can't look at whether something's been effective or you can't measure something if you don't have a constant or a consistent starting point. So having our definition had to be our our baseline. Yeah. And and I think that's really important. And some schools do like saying, well, if this is what wellbeing is at other places, well, then we make it, you know, and that, and I don't think you can tweak a, a wellbeing framework into your environment. Helen Street's work recently on contextual wellbeing tells us it has to be based around your own context and your con- no, no two school should, should have, uh, I guess, the same definition because we all work in different environments with different people. So having, having a definition of what wellbeing is to you that your staff understand, your staff then use as, as their, their branch off is, I guess, lesson number two. Lovely. Um, number three comes to where I think I spoke before about language, Have, giving, giving a consistent approach to language. So when we introduced Bounce Back in the junior school and the resilience programs in the senior school, we knew that to make them successful, we had to have a common shared understanding of language. So when a child went from PE and spoke of bravery, they could go to a, a biology lesson and understand that the term bravery meant the same thing. We, didn't, we had to make sure our teachers were on the same page. So we, without con- common and consistent language, we're going to confuse our students. You know, I can't, well, Mrs. Mrs. Johnson says that, you know, to be persistent means, but you know, Mr. Colbeck said no, being persistent means. So having a common shared understanding of what each term um, means and, and how you use it is a, a really important lesson because without consistency, we, um, I guess we're fighting a battle because we're just confusing our students. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the offshoot of that is by having it used regularly gives our boys or students <laughs> license to then use it. We had to give our kids permission to say, that's okay. Use the language. We, we throw words at our, at our students. So one of the early teachings, again, was about degrees of emotion. So we would say, I'm happy or I'm sad, but the happiness scale is a huge scale. The sad scale is a huge scale. So we'd say to a, a seven-year-old, you know, are you, really, are you really sad or are you just a little bit cranky? You know, what, what's the degree? Are you, are you really mad or, you know, to just get out of bed a little bit grumpy this morning? And to be able to articulate. So a boy could come in here and say to me, oh, Mr. Colbert, you know what? If I go into the yard today, I'm just not sure what I might do because I'm feeling a little bit edgy. I'm feeling that things aren't quite normal for me at the moment. My emotions are doing strange things. And I just think I need, you know, to be safe, I need to stay in here. Great. 
what what child says that? We've given them the license to say, tell me about it. Here are some words to use. Use them. Lovely. That that has, I guess, an offshoot for parents as well, because training our children is one thing, training our parents is is something else. So actually, so I'm taking that as number four. So so number three is shared language and number four is that emotional articulation, being able to 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 be able to express and label emotions. I think that's really sure. important. You know? I think that's, yeah. Because we have to give permission. And then, so David, you, you've just mentioned their parents. You know, it's one thing to train the students. It's another to, to engage with the parents. How have you been able to engage with your parent community and to, to work with, you know, to respond to different cultures in that community? Big question. <laughs> Based on maybe our, our socioeconomic background at a school like ours, there's, there was this false belief that mental ill health knows, um, you know, your, your socioeconomic background or your lifestyle. Or, but we know that no one cares mentally. No one cares about how much money you have in the bank or, or where you're growing up. We, you know, difficult times happen to everybody. So that was our first challenge with parents to say that, you know, this isn't just talking about the, the negative things that you see on the, you know, portrayed through the media. This is about giving all of our boys, regardless, a toolkit to cope later in life because every one of us has faced challenges. The, the, the day of, oh, you know, the, the fathers or the mothers saying, but, you know, they're boys, they'll just suck it up and move on. No, no, because... Our, our, our society has moved beyond that. We, we talk about the growing numbers of, of people presenting with mental ill health. Part of me wonders, you know, are they growing or have they been there, but they weren't allowed to be spoken about? No one ever acknowledged that they may have been struggling or they may have been suffering. They never sought help. So, so do you think that, did, did you feel that you had to kind of bring your parents along or were they coming in that direction anyway to the understanding that, you know, um, psycho- psychological distress and challenge affects all of us? I think the timing was right because of, of what was being shared through social media, you know, on, on, on the news outlets. Um, so the largest cohort of our parents could see exactly why we were doing it and they appreciated the difficulty and the challenges we educate our boys in a language and we might do a parent night or we might do a series of parent nights, but not necessarily enough to give the parents the same language that we are then using with their children. So how did you deal with that challenge? Openly and honestly. And we would say things at parent nights, we're we're giving you a toolkit. We understand that you're getting a snapshot of a toolkit to support what we're doing, we really need you to use this language. But also then to acknowledge to our parents, and, and again, it comes back to us as teachers starting with us, to acknowledge that sometimes we will mess up. We will say things, you know, that don't align themselves with positive psychology, that don't, you know, frame ourselves or, or our interactions in, in the best manner but to acknowledge it and accept that we are human and then to use it as the lesson. So saying to our parents, okay, you might've said that to your child, acknowledge it, 
celebrate with your child saying, look, mum's stuffed up too, dad's stuffed up. We're learning along the way, but this is how we're going to learn it because what that then does is create an open communication with your child to say, I'm acknowledging that I'm not perfect. I'm telling you, I'm apologising to you. Feel free and have the confidence to, to do that back to me. So getting our parents to acknowledge that we don't expect them to be perfect. Their, their children might have that understanding that parents are always perfect, but that's not a real understanding or expectation. And, and to get our kids to know that when mum or dad messes up, it's okay, helps them to understand when they mess up, it's okay. So with the parents, again, it has been continual. So if we call that a, a, a challenge going back to that, one of the things we had to do again this year was to reintroduce some of our parent sessions because it had just become so ingrained into who we are and what we do that we forgot that sometimes our parents don't have what we've given our boys. Our boys have experienced it for years, starting as three-year-olds. Doesn't mean our parents have. And so the uptake of of some sessions that I ran last term um, with our our school psychologists were, were just, I guess, reaffirming to hear parents saying, give us more, give us more. We want to know because we don't know what we don't know. We understand you're a a well-being school and we understand that these are the reasons we've chosen to send our sons there, but help give us the toolkit. And, yeah, so that's that's been, I guess, a a lesson, a challenge um, and something that we need to to keep in the front of our minds. This is not just about what happens in their education at school. It's about making sure that what we do now produces somebody as, as a young adult who, who does have a toolkit to look after themselves, who can acknowledge that things may not be right. Because we know what we're doing, and, and I get asked this question is, you know, if, if you've been doing these programs for so long and if you've been doing them so well, why do you still have boys at the school who are struggling? And you say, you know, you, you can almost celebrate that and say, isn't it fantastic that we know there are boys struggling because they're coming forward and telling us. That in itself should be celebrated. Boys haven't been known as the people who would come forward as a 15 or 16-year-old saying, I'm struggling. Celebrate that. But also know that this is not, this is not a cure. What we are doing is giving a toolkit to say, this is everything we can give you. And like any toolkit, you take something out and you try it. And if it doesn't work, you put it back and you try something new. And that's what we want our boys to get out of our program. And that's an easy sell to sell to any culture, to say Mm -hmm. that cross-culturally we are giving your child a toolkit that at any point in time he can draw on and help him to be the best person and to flourish and to acknowledge that bad times are going to be there. Yeah, I think, I think that's so important that, you know, this is, this is a very useful toolkit that the student can have as they move forward in life to help them face the inevitable challenges that are a normal part of life. It's, exactly. not, it's not a panacea or a magic wand that will stop life from happening in all its um, messy, challenging <laughs> yeah true. And, um, and and I think that's kind of part of the work of educating parents is reminding them that life isn't perfect yes 
Yes. That this is we, the we all say that as adults, don't we? You know, life was so much simpler. We understand that we are, have challenges now. And, and it's interesting listening to adults who talk about life becoming more challenging. So if life is becoming more challenging for us as adults, what is it doing for our children? Yeah. If there are so many more influences on our lives, you know, and we just take the social media side alone, if, if it's having such an impact on, on our day and, and how much time we have in our day or how much time we devote into these things and how we interpret messages, how does that work to a, you know, a developing 13-year-old brain? If it's having messages thrown all the time and not knowing how to interpret or to read or decipher or, or, or even what is real. And, 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 I, and, I, and I spend a lot of time with our, our teachers talking about that whole side of things of, of the whole perfectionism because I could put a photo. I might have taken 48 photos and I put this photo up because it's the one I like that I think I look the best in. And everyone says, what a great photo. But how fake is that? And so... Yeah, I'm going off on a tangent, but I just no. I think I think we can all get on a rant about um, you know the the importance of acknowledging the reality of life and not getting tricked into um, this very unhelpful goal of perfectionism. Couple of final questions for you. One is. Um, What's the one thing that you'd like to see parents or teachers doing that you think would make the biggest difference to young people's resilience and well-being? Just one? <laughs> yeah, go on. If I, if I pinned you down to one, what would it be? Okay. Um, I think it would be about developing resilience and, gr- sorry, it would be about grit. It'd be about perseverance one thing that we struggle with teach, as teachers now is getting our children to stick at doing something, you know, knowing that if I stick at it, if it gets hard, do I just give up? Do I find an alternative path? Do I seek help? How do I start something that I'm going to commit to finishing? And, and for our parents and teachers, we often hear parents say, Oh yeah, like they they started football. They did a couple of weeks. They yeah, they didn't really enjoy it. So you know, we stopped and we say, but did they make a commitment to the team? What now happens with the team? Um, you know, it, we liken it to the whole three click thing on the internet. If I haven't found something in three clicks, do I keep looking or do I give up? Um, so grit and perseverance, I think, for parents and teachers is a is a really important feature. I don't know. I'm trying to think of if I think it's the most important. Go on, um, what's your number two then? Uh, number, two, number two comes down to everything. Number two is relationships. If yeah. we cannot form relationships that are meaningful, that are authentic, that are open and trusting and respectful, and if we cannot know that a relationship has good and bad times and we accept them and we acknowledge that no relationship is perfect. And that, yeah, now, now I'm on my high horse. I think that is, that is key to everything because if I have that relationship, if I know there's someone out there, be it my parent, a friend or my teacher who has my back, that is key to me feeling good about myself because I know that someone is looking out for me and I know I'm looking out for someone else. Mm-hmm. It's that whole sense of connectedness. And if we, I, that's, that's the struggle 
I think with, with mm. mental ill health is perhaps that loss of feeling connected. And if I don't feel connected, do I feel like no one has my back and, yeah. and no one is, is there to protect me? So, and, and I think that also links into what you were talking about, about grit and perseverance, in that I know for people like me, um, I might not be gritty for the sake of grit's sake, but I really don't like letting people down. Yeah. And so if I have relationships that are important to me, I will stick out really hard stuff because I don't want to let people down. Yeah, fantastic. So. Fantastic. Does that then, now I'm asking you the question, <laughs> does that then come at the expense of knowing that that may impact on your own well-being because you're looking out for somebody else perhaps at the detriment of yourself? Well, I mean, it might do at some time, but I think, you know, life isn't all a bed of roses. Sometimes we do stuff and we know there are periods where we just have to grind it out and get something done. Yeah. And, and yep, I'm prepared to put myself through some hard times. But okay. I guess um, I think the thing that I want young people to know is that there are times where you have to dig, dig, dig really deep, yeah. grind it out, do some really tough stuff that's not fun, um, but that in the long term you should be able to put yourself back in the frame and look after yourself. So, David, if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being, what would it be? For me personally or me across, it's, you know, is it just what I would do for myself or? No, for the world. For the world. Mm. I guess I would stand on the rooftop to scream about what I just said about relationships. Yeah. Who, who out there does not feel like someone has their back? Because if you feel that, that's a horrible place to be. Yeah. To know that, to know that I can go home and I might have bad times with my children or my wife but I know push come to shove, they've got my back. Yeah. Or I go into my boss and we might have a professional disagreement, but I know she has my back. I, th- I think I-, I would worry and I struggle to understand the level of emotion someone must feel if they feel they don't have a relationship with someone that they're connected to. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's for our, our students, that's for the community to know that, Again, every relationship is different and not to look for the same connectedness in every relationship and to know that I'm going to have a relationship with someone at work who helps me be the best person I can be at work. And that person might be, but might not be the same person who makes me feel that I'm the best person I can be outside of work. Or if I'm, you know, watching the footy on the weekend or if I'm, um, you know, at a, at a dance concert with my daughter, you know, yeah. who I am when I'm at my best, there will be different people that I connect to and make me feel good and make me feel valued and make me feel yeah, valued and, and I guess worthwhile. Cause if someone doesn't feel worthwhile as a human, that's yeah. For me, that's yeah. In, yeah, incomprehensible to know mm. what that must feel like. So for you, that's a plea to the, to humankind that, that we all step up to take on that role of being significant to people in different ways. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, and I know, I guess judgment is a, um, an unfortunate trait of, of, of humankind, but to be a little less judging of others and to know that, we, we don't know everyone's backstories. We don't know what's going on behind the eyes of someone where we're walking past. 
you know, next week we're doing a, a huge celebration in our school of, of are you okay day and, and just learning to ask someone, are you okay? But in a genuine way, because it's not, you know, the, how are you? Good, excellent, because you've given me the answer I want to hear. No, what does it mean to know that someone is okay? Yeah, sorry. I'll, I think it's, a, it's a great. It's a great campaign. Okay, last question for you. So, yes. what is your personal go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you feel frustrated or down? Uh, it's something I've had to teach myself because I don't, based on my personality, um, self-regulation, twenty-fourth character strength. So I, I find things really challenging to there, and I'm. I had to learn. Um, to be good to myself, I think I'm, you know, something that, that I know was, is in my DNA, it's in my makeup, is that I, I think I'm better for other people than I am for myself. So I had to really learn that it's okay to take a step back um, and to worry about me just that little bit. And so my go-to has just become walking. It used to be music. I used to be able to lose myself in music. Um, but I think the older I get... The, yeah, the thoughts don't necessarily stop with music. So that, for me, it's that being able to disconnect with where my mind is and just take a mindless walk. You know, we talk about the difference between mindfulness and mindlessness, but for me, being mindful is actually choosing to take a mindless walk and know that while I'm walking, I'm breathing, I'm acknowledging, again, the, you know, the, the, the beauty and the wonder around me and, and learning to separate my emotion from my surroundings because I think what I see then helps have that impact on, on me being able, able to get through. Oh, I think that's about being really present. So it's not bringing the baggage in your mind with you on the walk and just going no. and being where the walk is. Yeah. 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 Because that, again, shows me that for that point in time that the bad time hasn't lasted I've been able to say I'm, I'm leaving that there and for the this next 30 minutes, it's all about me. Helps clear the mind, helps me come back to say, okay, is that problem as big as I think it is? Let's work through it. But it also yeah, it gives me a chance to, to, to recenter, refocus and, and realign my, my thought patterns to even acknowledge the fact that maybe I was catastrophizing or um, you know, I'm building into it. I'm, I'm making assumptions about someone else's thoughts. And even then identify what is the problem, what are the possible solutions? Are are you just guessing someone else's response or or are you bringing past experience in? So it's walking. As simple as that is. No, that's (laughs) That's, lovely. But actually it's it's bigger than walking because it's what you said first. It's, It's learning to be good to yourself. Oh, David, I've really appreciated having time to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been great chatting. Love it. Thank you. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their wellbeing and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz.